I need someone to acknowledge my presence. Hey, Nancy, thank you so much for updating Nightbot and having this week's guest properly handled. I gotta move David over a little bit here. And so begins the Uplift Wars, says Bill Druin. Uh, we'll be talking about that too. Middle of the night. Hey everyone, how's it going? We are live. Oh, what what have you got? Globe of Venus. Oh, that's awesome. Now that's where we should be terraforming. Now that it turns out the whole carbon dioxide, there isn't enough carbon dioxide on Mars to terraform it. Let's uh, let's terraform Venus. It's better anyway. I have a uh, one of my most recent novellas, uh, which was very popular. One of my best um, adventure stories I've written in quite some time is set on a um, terraformed Venus deep uh, where human refugees fleeing alien invaders are down under the oceans of Venus. Of course. And uh, we've accomplished that through pummeling Venus with millions of comets, which if they hit at a glancing blow can also speed up its rotation. Right. Tear away a lot of the poisonous atmosphere while, dis dis while contributing mega, mega, mega tons of water. So the oceans grow and they've been down in these domes underneath and they haven't realized what's, what's going on up above. So it's a fun story. Oh, well, hey everybody, for anyone who has no idea what's going on, um, I'm joined this week for the live QA with uh, David Brin, sci-fi author, uh, NASA, um, I'm trying to think, uh, contributor um, and uh, general futurist. And uh, David and I uh, hung out briefly. We were on a cruise together as we attempted to avoid the end of the world back in 2012. Uh, we were at the Mayan ruins at the moment that the apocalypse was supposed to happen and didn't. I've actually been a fan of David Brin's for uh, many years. Uh, the Uplift series is one of my favorites. Uh, just some really great concepts. Um, Earth, I think, is the book of yours that I know the most, and the one where you made a bunch of predictions that uh, that felt really prescient. I, I actually was just reviewing some notes, and and you wrote, or Earth was published back in 1990, so before the World Wide Web, but you really well articulated where the sort of online communications was all going to go. But the thing that I was... Um, most the thing that, of your writing that made the biggest difference to me actually was a nonfiction that you book you wrote about this idea of the transparent society and this idea that that thanks to technology we're all going to be living in public all the time and it can either be this really dark idea or this really positive one depending on who gets to look at all of the information and so before we get into all the other stuff that I know people want to talk about this is for me we are in the Facebook era. We are in the Me Too movement. Which of your pathways that you set a, uh, set up in your book are we walking on right now? All of them. <laughs> Simultaneously. And I predicted that we would be going on all of them because we are a magnificently diverse species, a diverse civilization. And we're the first civilization of our species that's made that a compliment, that uh, it's a compliment that we're diverse and 
rambunctious and that we question authority. If you look at all the movies that we enjoy, that Hollywood promulgates, it's a very unusual propaganda, unlike the central propaganda messages in all the other civilizations across 6,000 years, they preached conformity. And almost all Hollywood films preach suspicion of authority. Some authority figure has to be resisted. Tolerance, diversity, and eccentricity. The central character exhibits bonds with the audience by exhibiting some eccentric trait. So in normal times, a decent, the only difference between a decent Republican and a decent Democrat is which direction they think there are conniving conspirators trying to uh, right. become big brother. Uh, the decent conservative is, is concerned about snooty academics and faceless government bureaucrats. The decent liberal is concerned about uh, conniving aristocrats, oligarchs, and faceless corporations. If you put it that way, the only answer is, well, duh. You know, cheaters are going to try to use any accumulation of power to bring back 6,000 years of pyramidal social structures called feudalism. We've escaped that largely by breaking up power so that the powerful have to compete with one another. And they're always going to try to cheat by conniving with each other instead of competing with right, each other. Of course. Not all of them. There are plenty of billionaires today who are loyal to the diamond-shaped, flat social structure they grew up in and that, that created all the creativity and the science and all of the stuff that benefited them as well as everybody else. But always human nature is going to connive to try, the powerful will try to cheat and reform this pyramid of power. And that's what we're scared of. If you actually parse out all the artificial intelligence nightmares that you see in the movies and in novels, they basically boil down to some new powerful being, an AI, a robot, is going to try to rebuild the pyramid of oppression. We know it could come back at any point in time. It could come back from a socialist big brother. It could come back by a, a right-wing set of oligarchs combining foreign oligarchs with some of our own traders. Um, but that's what we fear. Yeah. Well, what is the one thing that enabled us to break up power so that elites had to compete with each other. That's our trick. Well, the Constitution was a big part of it. Break up political power. Um, our natural instincts, antitrust legislation, broke up economic power. Yeah. Right now, it's concentrating and concentrating and concentrating. And oligarchs are, are, are rubbing each other's backs and conspiring together. Well, you know, my parents' generation, the so-called greatest generation of World War II, survived the depression, crushed Hitler, contained communism, took us to the moon, built the great American middle class. You know, these are idolized. Great generation. They knew about this. In their youth, the rich had been doing the same thing. And they passed reforms. What is the trick? And the trick, I went a long way around, especially for a bunch of space fanatics. We'll get to space yeah, in a minute. We'll get to minute. space in, in one minute. But again, yeah. this is, this is one the, of the most – just to be clear, this is one of the most influential books that I've ever read and defined a lot of the way I think about my whole career. So, 
the trick that enabled us to, to do this is transparency. Yeah. If we let the gloom and doom people convince us that the only way to deal with inhomogeneities of power is to hide from the mighty, yell at them, don't look at me. And that's what most of the civil libertarians, and they're heroes. I, I send money to the ACLU. I send money to the Electronic Frontier Foundation. They do good work, but they keep falling back to what the Europeans fall back on, and that is paternalistic rules to prevent the mighty from looking at us. It will never work. Right. What we have to realize is that it's less important what other people know about you than what they can do to you. And your best app option at preventing them from doing anything to you is if they are naked. If you can see them, then it matters much less what they see about you because you'll see them trying to harm you and you'll scream bloody murder. And this is what exactly I predicted in the Transparent Society, page 160, that we would get a day when cops would be wearing cameras and the guys they stopped stepping out of their car would be wearing cameras. Would be wearing cameras, yeah. And this did, wasn't a miracle. It didn't happen overnight. But since 2013, the best year for civil liberties in America in this century, when the Obama administration and the, um, and the courts declared that citizens have a universal right to record their interactions with police, the most important civil liberties thing in this century and the press didn't cover it because the press is addicted to gloom. Right. Bad news. And it has changed everything on the streets. Not instantly. Yeah. But every cop agency in America is looking for its bad eggs because they know they're going to be embarrassed and yeah. they're going to face lawsuits. Yeah. So, yeah, I appreciate you mentioning the Transparent Society. Uh, and some of those themes are in my novels, Earth and Existence. But um, maybe we should move on to space. Yeah, let's move on to space. Uh, so, if we, so if we if we do um, if we do politics, it's gonna be yeah. Um, so uh, Sergio, you're saying that your ears are hurting a little bit. Let me know if I've got the audio up, down, sort of the wrong level. So please, if people are listening to this, just let me know if I need to fine tune the audio. I've got some different microphones on both sides of this conversation. So please let me know. All right, let's move on to space. Now, the, the part that I think that's going to be most relevant for the people that are watching this show is that you are on the advisory board for NASA's uh, innovative Advanced Concepts Group, NIAC, and many of the episodes that I do are all about NIAC, some of the coolest ideas. So can you give people just a bit of a, an explanation of what, of what NIAC does for NASA? Yeah, NIAC is NASA's sort of mini, mini micro DARPA, uh, if you know what DARPA is. It's, a, it's the forward edge of the sphere when it comes to ideas. Um, NIAC gives little $150,000, half million dollar uh, seed grants to ideas that are just this side of implausible. It yeah. seem like they might work. And we can talk about some of the really cool ideas. If you finish your first year of a NIAC grant, phase one, and you get a phase two, that can be one and a half million dollars. 
uh, and um, you have real bragging rights then. And a number of our uh, grants have gone on to way bigger things. For example, most space launches are more volume limited than weight limited. In other words, the volume inside the fairing of the rocket or inside the shuttle's cargo bay for that matter, uh, the volume of the cargo is what limits what the rocket can carry more than uh, the weight. Now, if we could build things in space, structures in space, then we wouldn't have to carry up these girders with the, tri you know, the triangular girders that, made of triangles that, 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 that hold up cranes and that sort of thing, structural members. Well, they're very hollow, have a high volume to weight ratio deliberately. You want them to be very light structures. You carry girders into space and you're just messed up all the economics launches. But if you could load into your cargo bay a bunch of spools of carbon tape and feed them into a machine that then spot welds them into the triangles and spot welds the triangles together into girders, wow, those spools take up almost no space. So one of the NIAC grants that took off was uh, when one of our grantees showed in a film these spools feeding into a machine and this girder rises up yes. and goes up 30, 40 feet on earth. Yeah. Um, one of the craziest recent NIAC grants was uh, dealt with the fact that electronics doesn't survive very long on the surface of Venus. We have no electronic computer chips that could survive at the blistering temperatures down there. And the Russian landers that used refrigerators and vacuum tubes, they lasted, you know, matters of minutes. Um, good accomplishment. But, you know, what if you want a lander that's going to rove around the surface and get you data? Well, some guys at JBL, young guys, came up with a notion for an entirely uh, analog mechanical lander. Wind powered, the wind would drive it along, um, and it. I told them, don't use the strand beast thing. It, right, of course, yeah. Yeah, you'll you just look at the site, and and you'll um, and your host will give you the uh, link to the. Uh, to the strand beast, it's 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 way cool fun, but the uh, I told them no, you have to have have treads, but um, they I figured out how they could get a camera, how they could get an analog camera, camera. yeah, a totally analog camera because that's what TV was. You young whippersnappers out there have no idea. When I was a kid, there were no computers in the TV. It didn't figure out where each pixel was. It did an analog raster scan, and we could do that. So um, I'm, I'm, my job is to be helpful. To be, uh, right. Well, and, so, and that's the thing, right, is that you get a chance to see these ideas early on and then help NASA choose who's going to get some of this money, which has just got to feel like your opening presents at Christmas. I mean, it's the, when, when can I get on this 
group, please. Any t- uh, <laughs> where do I send my application? Because I would love to to do this. Um, well, it's highly cool. Let me say that the next NIAC symposium, and they are open to the public, is going to be in Boston on uh, September 25th through 27th. So uh, Fraser will give you the link to the NIAC site. You can look yep. at these wonderful, cool projects, um, ways that we might be able to x-ray and look at the insides of asteroids, for example. Um, so Fraser will uh, give you a, um, yep. a link to NIAC and you'll be able to see those of you who are in New England you can come and just register in advance and you can attend, attend the symposium. It, it's way fun. Now I'm getting a bunch of questions just in the chat from people. So for example, things like is Nyack looking into artificial gravity and radiation shielding? Hmm. Well, I don't always agree with all Nyack grants. If by artificial gravity, you mean classic Newtonian methods for making artificial gravity. Um, my friend, Joe Carroll, of, of uh, Tether applications, uh, he has done a lot of work on the swinging bolas. Yeah. And it's a crying shame that NASA hasn't invested in those, and, and that, that, that may change. Um, the NIAC did give a grant to... <laughs> I need to restrain myself. <laughs> this notion that you lie down in this bed... Right, of course. And- it's a sled. It one end, and then it, it whirls you around and accelerates to the other end. Yep. Um, okay. <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, radiation shielding is, has often been a topic. Yep. Um, we also say that we're always looking for biology. Um, and uh, to be quite honest with you, uh, it doesn't hurt. Um, let's just say that it doesn't bias the final decision of whether or not you get the grant, but it can certainly bias the initial friendliness with which you are received if you have some women or minorities in your, right. uh, in your group. Just to give you some, I mean, to give people just some examples of some of the NIAC stuff that I've reported on in the past, uh, a lunar space elevator, the the Starshade concept made its way through the NIAC grants, okay. as I recall. Starshade, yep. the, the floral-shaped Starshade yep. is one that got advanced grants, a lot more money after it was seeded by NIAC, yes. We did a whole episode on ideas for hibernation, and there was a pretty great grant that went through NIAC about, and it's still in the works, about potentially cooling, you know, giving people artificial hypothermia and cooling them down. and oh, torpor. Torpor, yeah. Not uh, hibernation. You don't lose consciousness, yeah. Right, right, torpor. Um, and uh, so, I mean, there are, uh, about how many are, how many are awarded every year? Um, there's about 15 phase ones, um, uh, and about, oh, seven or eight, nine, ten phase twos every year. Um, the ratio we seek is for about 20% to get further funding and excitement. Yeah. Down the line. Uh, if it's lower than that, um, we could get into trouble because we're not succeeding at our mission. If our success rate is much higher than that, 
it's a sign that we're being too careful. Yeah, right. Probably the most successful Nyack Grant recently was this fellow who said, um, we have a problem with the coatings in space. Um, silver is often used on Earth to help cool things down um, because it, it, it reflects light very nicely. Um, but in space, you see, um, the silver is exposed also to the space and the sun's uh, ultraviolet, which we don't get down here on Earth. If we take care of the Earth and retain our ozone layer, then we will not be exposed to ultraviolet. And silver socks in ultraviolet. So as a result, you have a silver coating in space, uh, you're in danger of really heating up. So he looked for ceramic composite materials and found some that are absolutely fantastic. You coat a cylinder um, that's out there and it's in sunlight. You don't even have a shade. Uh, and it will drop in temperature almost down to cryogenic levels. All you need is a little topping refrigerator to get it down to cryogenic le levels. That is a game changer. And it came out of Nyack. Yeah. Um, and he's getting commercial, oh, commercial uses out of the wazoo. Right. Well, and there are a lot of those fundamental ideas. I mean, just to go back to this conversation that you had about this space-based manufacturing, that that to build something like, like the whole problem with the James Webb Space Telescope right now is the whole thing has to survive the Earth gravity, has to survive being able to fit inside a fairing that is of a certain size, and it has to be able to handle the stresses of launch. Were you able to construct all of that stuff in space bit by bit by, you know, spider robots extruding carbon fiber uh, girders out of their spinnerets? Uh, you know, it's a whole different way to look at this. And a lot of these technologies, they just compound on, on top of each other if you can start to take that, that next step over. And so it feels like there are these two worlds. On the one hand, you've got NASA with all of these advanced technologies and these really great ideas and stuff that, you know, if anyone thinks that NASA is conservative, you look at these NIAC awards, you look at where actual funding are being given, and it's, it's pretty great. But on the flip side, things are fairly conservative about how they actually make it under space and actually get tested. So is there, do you feel like there's some kind of change in the way some of these NIAC awards are making the transition to practical applications for upcoming missions? Well, you know, there's a whole um, technical readiness level um, uh, formula. And NIAC is at the very beginning of this. Um, there is supposedly 20, 25% of the grants um, prove themselves enough so that either some commercial entities will come in and give them support, as has happened with the guy with the cryogenic coatings, deservedly so, or they go on and they get what's called an SBIR or a... Right. Um, a technology development grant, and these can be several million dollars, um, and they work their way up to the point where um, they could either go on a NASA demo mission. Uh, unfortunately, there aren't that many of these funded anymore. Right. 
um, technology demo missions, or, or you could wind up um, proving the value of your idea so well that the principal investigators in a plant mass, a planetary or uh, manned mission, uh, then say, I want this. So those are routes upward and upward to success. And of course, the, the most, uh, the biggest example of gradually going along this path of development until it is absolute no-brainer, everyone's using it, is ion engines. Yes. Uh, and, and now ion engines are, you know, they're, they're just absolutely... Well, and and, this is a great, I mean, that's a yeah. great example, right? Just that that the whole concept of the ion engine had been fairly well tested in the lab, but NASA was nervous about actually installing it and relying it on, on any specific mission. And then they went with the Deep Space One mission and a whole bunch of other tests all at the same time on this one on this one mission. I thought it was a, a wonderful way to to test out all of these these ideas. And I would like to to get to sort of something that you brought to the table today, which is your critique of the plan to go to the moon. So I was wondering if we could just quickly segue into this and then perhaps we can have an argument. Um, how do you feel about the current ideas to, to send humans to the moon? Well, uh, I sent you some slides and so we can run, um, sure. show some of them. Uh, it's in a PowerPoint there. Yeah. But um, you can see um, the first the first slide showing um, destinations um, where where we've sent a lot of missions, and there's a lot of talk of the moon, Mars, and asteroids. Those are the three three places we talk about. I'd like to um, also include in the discussion uh, what are called roofed worlds. And those are the worlds like Europa, where there's liquid water uh, protected from space by an ice roof. Uh, back in Arthur Clarke's time, and have pe uh, people ought to look up, you'll get a link from Fraser. Uh, look up the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. So we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of 2001 A Space Odyssey at Comic-Con. And both Dave and Frank were there. Kier Dulay and 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 um, and Gary Lockwood. So, all right. So now we know that it, it, in Arthur's day, it was just Europa that we thought had a buried ocean. Now we're pretty sure there are maybe as many as twelve roofed roofed oceans. So that means that um, if you're talking about just the conditions for life. It may be that the conditions for basic life exist in every single solar system in the galaxy. Every one, even a flare star, even a type A star, even, even um, stars that are too hot and have no Goldilocks zone might have liquid water-based roofed worlds. Um, so, that's a bit of an aside from the question you asked me. The, the argument we're facing right now is, should we go direct to Mars or should we try to do something, you know, to prove our capabilities before we go? I favor proving our capabilities, um, but there's a huge debate over how to do that. Uh, 
I, uh, I see the comparison as being a true no-brainer. Uh, were you able to show the slide that shows all the, all the destinations? Yep, yep. So let's move to the next slide, and you see that it's become a fight, a political fight. It's become enmeshed in our civil war that America is in right now. I call it phase eight of the American Civil War. And, and unfortunately, a, a decision that should be made based on science between whether we should invest in going to the moon or going to the asteroids is being uh, decided on the basis of politics. Um, so so uh, you're showing them the, you, the moon the one versus the asteroids. All right, let's go to the next one. Yeah. Uh, now we're not going to do the animations here. These various images just flick in. But oh, they no, they I did it. It's happening. Oh, the uh, the animations are happening. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, the B612 Foundation. People should look it up. The B612 Foundation. I'm the board of advisors for that too. Um, is a foundation that tries to um, that emphasizes the finding of asteroids that might be threats. Now, we're already finding them at a very great pace. Hey, one was named after me. Uh, but um, the synoptic camera that's going to open next year in Chile yep. is going to really, really uh, do a great job of finding the asteroids, though not the comets. My doctoral dissertation was in comets, but don't blame me. Um, basically, um, but there are other groups like planetary resources, deep space industry, that have on their, their director, board of directors, uh, John Lewis, who wrote the epic book, Mining the Sky, back in the 1980s, uh, showing us that if you took the right asteroid out there, found the right one, one kilometer asteroid of the right kind, and melted it down. Now, we don't know how to do that yet, but it seems very likely we will. There are NIAC grants for making huge mirrors in space. Um, inflated reflective mirrors that could yeah. melt them. If you melted down a one kilometer asteroid of the right size and right, right type, and there are lots of types, you could get the entire world's steel production for a year. Yes. The entire world's gold and silver production for 10 to 100 years in the entire world's platinum group elements production that we produce in a hundred to a thousand years. Now, those bits of wealth are currently inaccessible to us. So we would start by going to a different kind of asteroid, the much more liquidy, volatile rich asteroid, ice rich. And all we'd have to do is throw a baggie around it and the sunlight going through the bag would create its own greenhouse effect and sublimate a lot of the ice, which we would simply collect. And here's the deal. We could do that within five years. We know how to do that. Yes. And water in space is spectacularly valuable. So, so just to sort of summarize here, uh, the moon is a dry, boring desert. Asteroids are amazing resources that can serve as the underlying economy for the future of human mankind. That's your position. Go to the next slide. I, the, the, where are the ores? Yeah. Okay. 
basically on Earth, ores, resources that we mine came from basically three places. Sometimes volcanism, sometimes meteoritic impacts like the great um, iron deposits of Lake Superior, but mostly water percolating through the crust, um, uh, absorbed uh, various elements and then selectively laid them out along ore patterns that we later mine. None of those three things happened on the moon. The moon was made from a crust from the earth that was blasted out into space. So it never had much metal in the first place and it was molten and so its metal sank. Uh, so the moon started metal poor, it, it, it became metal poorer. There's right. no water separation processes. There might be some scattered meteoritic iron that you might be able to collect by dragging magnets. And there's a little bit of water at the poles. And I'm a science fiction author. I believe that water should be left for lunar colonists. I think the biggest way to have the loonies curse us is if we waste it making rocket fuel when we could get vastly more from asteroids. And people, people they say helium-3. Well, you guys have watched too many movies. Too much sci-fi. It's mythological. There's no evidence that it's there. And even if we found it, we don't have any customers for it yet. I would like nothing better. Watch the movie Moon. It's a great movie. <laughs> yeah. It's about helium mining. So if you skip past the, oh yeah, let's just go to the next slide. The next slide tells you about the delta V or velocity change you need to get from the Earth's surface to LEO, low Earth orbit, from LEO to, an, to a near-Earth asteroid, to an Earth-crossing asteroid, not to the asteroid belt. From LEO to the lunar surface, and from LEO to the moons of Mars. And the moons of Mars, by the way, are things that I've been nagging everybody we should be looking at. The Russians know. They keep yeah, trying to see. If you look at the energy that it takes to go to near-Earth asteroids, it's a lot cheaper, especially if you have to launch back out of the moon's gravitational well. So let's sum it all up in the next slide. All right. There's the trade-offs. The moon has no resources. Asteroids are easier to get to energetically. The moon is not a way station to Mars. It is not a way station to Mars. For the asteroids, there is a disadvantage, and that is the trip times to get to a near-Earth asteroid are much longer than landing on the moon. So you don't want to send astrono astronauts to go and collect this stuff from the asteroids. You need robotics. But the plan was to bring asteroidal samples to the Lunar Gateway orbital station. And here's where the Republican and the Democrat ideas of what to do next overlap. We both agree there should be a lunar orbit station. It's just that the Trump administration canceled all plans to bring asteroidal samples there. And they instead want to use the lunar orbit station to service um, a, an, a repeat of Apollo. 
I vigorously oppose an American repeat of Apollo. Why should we do what everybody else is about to do and lap them by 50 years? What's the point? Their reason for going and planting footprints on the dusty surface is a reason that we satisfied 50 years ago, and that's called tourism. Yeah. Ego, a sense of, of gratification that we've arrived. Let them do that. Fine. We should set up, do what people do when they've done the tourism thing, and that is sell services to tourists. We should sell hotel space in our lunar orbital space station. We should offer them landers. We should s implicitly say, welcome to our moon. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, all right. So uh, now I, now I don't entirely disagree with you. Um, my feeling on this is that to pick a long-term goal as like what you've just described is where the mistake happens. So we saw that the original plan obviously was to go to the moon and that happened. And then the plan was to then go to Mars. And then the plan was to go back to the moon. And then the plan was to go to the asteroids. And then it was Mars and now it's to the moon. And I think it's the whole concept of choosing a goal in the first place that is really sort of the mistake. And so there's actually a group within NASA that is working on this idea that I really like which is called a capabilities-driven framework. So instead of trying to come up with the goal, the place we're going to return and plant our flag, or you know that we are going to reach the asteroids, all you do is harken back to the Gemini period, where each mission was an incremental um, improvement on the last. Each one was a um, was one additional capability and and incrementally, iteratively work your way into being able to do all kinds of things. Want to land on the moon? No problem. Want to land on an asteroid? No problem. All of those are within the capabilities of what you can do. The problem is, is that it's not really sexy, right? To say, oh, we're going to, you know, if I was running NASA, my plan was that, you know, each, each year we're going to send up a couple of missions and they're going to do something that's a little harder than last time. There is no goal, right? There is no long-term plan. So that's my that's my opinion, because um, I feel like I, I agree with you that asteroids are way better than the moon. But that as well is going to have its funding taken out from it, missions canceled, new directions passed along and so on and so forth. Well, yeah, you make a very good point, And I don't disagree with you. But the fact is that if you're aiming to build something somewhere, that is going to drive capabilities. I have no objection to the uh, lunar orbit station. It makes sense because that is a challenge. We can go and do it. Um, I like the fact that we could possibly sell services to the Chinese, Indians, Russians, um, Europeans, and billionaires who want to do their tourism thing. You know, Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, his recent novel, Artemis, is set on a lunar colony. And he racked his brains to think of a reason why yeah. we would have a lunar colony. Uh, and I'm not talking 100 years from now. There are plenty of good reasons 100 years from now or 50 years from now. But right now, you know, you're talking in the near future. The only reason for any, anybody to go to the surface of the moon is tourism. And so his lunar colony is serving tourists, rich tourists. Um, 
But there are additional reasons for doing the lunar, the lunar orbital station. For one thing, it is an ideal place to bring asteroidal resources. And so if we are building the capabilities, as you say, for doing robotics and robotics missions to asteroids uh, along the way, then, then the lunar station will be there and people will object less to asteroidal stuff being brought to lunar orbit than to bringing it to the Earth. There's an additional use for the, the, this, this um, stuff once we've studied it. And that is you keep it in bags and you have to keep it at the space station because, you know, tossing it away, you, you create pollution. Well, if anybody has read a, um, a very interesting novel called Ghost Fleet from a few years ago, every, almost every milita U.S. military officer read that one novel. Uh, by my friend August Cole and Peter Singer. Uh, it talks, it starts with a Chinese, Chinese crew aboard a Chinese space station using a super laser to zap every satellite we've got. So it gets rid of our space capabilities and suddenly we're blind. Being able to store uh, uh, intelligence, spy satellite and other resources in a safe place is a great national security thing. And a garage at a lunar orbital station that has asteroidal stuff packed around it, it would survive almost anything. Yeah. And so there's an additional defense reason to build the lunar orbital station. Look, my what it really comes down to to me is if we wind up doing a joint mission to the surface of the moon, and you know that's what it will wind up being, even if it starts out being a competition, everyone will save money by saying, oh, now we'll do it together. Yippee, yeah, yeah. we're going to use the BFR. Problem. We're going to deploy a Bigelow aerospace uh, inflatable habitat, and it's going to be NASA astronauts. Right, right. And, and eventually it becomes an international thing. And, and if it's an international thing, the only real effect will be all of American technology will be shared. What America should do is what no one else can do. That, that makes sense. Everyone else is going to the moon. We should do what others can't do. And especially since we have billionaires here on Earth who are already investing in asteroids and things like that. So I'm not, um, you know, I didn't mean for that to be the whole deal for this, uh, for this discussion. Um, but it is, it is interesting and actually fairly pathetic that the positions of moon versus asteroid have become so entangled in, um, in the insane politics of phase eight of the American Civil War. And and I think that at the end of the day, I mean, of course, I'm a Canadian. I have no, I can barely grok your exotic American politics and, and, and stuff. So I look at it as a, as an outside neutral party, but, um, but it, it just feels to me like it would be nice to skip the battle and move to whatever is the most, is the way that's going to increase the, the overall capabilities of, of humanity and i see people are you know having an argument in the comments about this you know it seems like a very capitalist approach but i i totally understand this is how you you know if we want human beings to be utilizing the resources of the solar system to be able to explore it 
there needs to be a way to make it cost effective and a way to make it be able to pay for itself. And the way you do that is you extract the resources and you and you bring them back to Earth and you have a way to, to be able to do this. That's that totally makes sense to me. And that and, and space will always be this huge investment and it will always be this long shot until it is it has an economic engine that is underpinning it that is making the whole thing run the second more money comes back from space uh than it costs then space will be the place yeah yeah and, and, and we are all in agreement about that the the well but not everybody on earth is in agreement about that and of course the suspicious paranoia interpretation of the return to the moon emphasis and the de-emphasizing of anything having to do with asteroids is that one of the American political parties is partly owned by those who have sunk costs in extraction of Earth resources. And those sunk costs may be endangered if we suddenly get access to asteroidal resources that cause the price for platinum group elements and gold and silver to plummet. So that's a cynical look at, at, at that. In other words, uh, the th very thing that you want, and that is for wealth to be developed by space, will threaten troglodytic, you know, uh, Cro-Magnon, yeah. Neanderthal. Uh, the, I don't want to say bad things about Neanderthals. Right. Uh, in fact, I speak favorably. Yeah, 2% Neanderthal. Uh, yeah, well, I speak favorably of them in my novel existence. I'll even resurrect them. But um, the, the, putting that aside, we should look also to the long picture. We have realized recently, I mean, some people on the denialist, in the denialist cult, denying global climate change, um, uh, one of their talking points is how could hu mere humans uh, alter something as uh, spectacularly huge as a planet and the reason and I have some slides uh, showing what's called the Goldilocks zone or the continuously habitable zone around our Sun and uh, the Sun has been getting gradually hotter ever since it was born um, about three billion years ago it was so cool that uh, something when fluctuations happened on the earth the earth froze over as an ice ball until the Gaia effect of the volcanoes created enough CO2 under the ice that it burst forth and the ice on Earth was gone within a thousand years. Wow, because I didn't know it happened wild, that quickly. A wild swing hysteresis effect. Um, well, all right, that inner edge of the Goldilocks zone is right at the Earth's orbit right now. We can only afford as much greenhouse gas as plants need to survive, as plants need to grow. Any more than that, and we're going to keep too much sunlight. So that's what's weird about the Earth is in a, say for instance, the discussions over the Fermi paradox, the discussion, and we could have an hour on that. Yeah. Uh, I'm, as, as you know, I'm heavily enmeshed in SETI and METI and yep. the whole argument over messaging to extraterrestrials and folks who uh, want to find out more about that uh, can look up my name and Meti, M-E-T-I. Um, but 
the fact is that the most anomalous thing about our planet is that for a water world, it may be anomalously dry because it skates the inner edge of our Goldilocks zone. Now, the continuously habitable zone, it turns out, goes past Mars. If Mars had been larger and kept plate tectonics and volcanoes, it would have kept its water. It would have a liquid water ocean right now. You'd be able to go down to Mars's ocean right now and surf, <laughs> bare-chested, yep. but wearing a respirator because the Gaia balance that would have kept Mars with its ocean would have been with a very dense CO2 atmosphere. So the tragedy of Mars is how small it was, not how far from the sun it was. Now, the sun is getting hotter. So within 100 million years, the amount of heat that we need to lose would require an atmosphere so transparent that plants could not grow. And when we reach that point, the earth is going to start to die, whether or not humans are responsible. So the question is, should we be resigned to that? Mm -hmm. Or should we start planning now to move the earth? Now, there's an alternative. You can put sunshade. Sure, you yeah. Sunshade. And you can even put a sunshade up that blocks some of the wavelengths and lets some of the blocks other wavelengths in. Or two or three percent of the actual light. Yeah. The problem with that is the instant the sunshade fails, you're back with the problem. Right. So across 100 million years, how are you going to maintain a civilization? Civilization is going to rise and fall. Species may rise and fall. I want to be able to move the earth so that when you have a high civilization, they can move it outward, save the planet. And then if they get bored, if they dive into cyberspace, if they leave the planet, if they drop dead, if their children decide to spend it all on games, um, they're still at the orbit that got moved out farther. And then the responsible people can come around and move it again. I know how to do it. And it is the most Baroque, weird video I've posted. And so if and you'll link to it. Sure, yeah. And we've talked about this a bit in the in the past. Um I, I'm not sure sort of where the state of the current thinking is. So we will link to it and let people uh discover your uh your latest uh version of that's that that sounds great. Um uh but but I know where you're going, but I but I'll I'll wait and let people know. So all right, so one of the things that I like to ask people, and keep in mind, we only have eight minutes left, um, and twirls of the of the mists bring this up, which is exactly the point. Is I like to ask everybody um, where they stand on the Fermi paradox. So can you give me your short version of how you feel is your explanation to the Fermi paradox? Because well, I promise your audience is very well familiar with the paradox, so they'd just love to hear your answer to it. Well, the best, the best book on it is called The Great Silence by uh, Milan Chukovic. I, uh, I will be talking to him in, in a couple of months. Yeah. Now, uh, it is basically the book that I was under contract to write for Cambridge University <laughs> Press 25 years ago. I think he did a better job than I would have. Um, but I just didn't have the time. I had this sci-fi career and all these other things. So I'm reviewing it for the American Journal of Physics. It'll be on my blog, which I recommend called Contrary Brin. You'll yep. find all sorts of stuff there. 
But basically, he takes the same position I have, and that is people who leap to say, I know the answer to the Fermi paradox are being very immature. Uh, it is a very intensely important scientific topic without any known subject matter. And so what we need to do is rank order these things and talk about them. There's various zoo hypotheses, for example. I ranked them in my 1983 paper called The Great Silence. Um, are we being kept in a zoo? Are we being interdicted like in um, Star Trek's um, right, it's a prime directive. Prime directive, uh, non-interference directive. Um, is it possible that one of the factors in the Drake equation might be anomalously small? Well, we already, in the last 20 years, we have really demolished the uncertainty about one of them, and that is, are there planets out there? Boy, uh, and you're a member of a civilization that did that. Yep. that got those incredible Juno pictures recently of Jupiter as if painted by Van Gogh. Uh, you know, it just the fact that we're a member of a civilization that can be so gloomy when we're, at, when we're achieving godlike things is a sign that we are saps giving into a media, left and right, one of them's worse than the other, well, don't worry. Uh, we we're nothing but positive on my channel, so all right, so good. we're we're an antidote to that. All right. So the point is that we we still don't know for sure that life might be the problem. That life erupting may be rare. I rank intelligence as being forgive me. Uh, somebody will pick that up. I believe that human level intelligence is in my top ten. I think there's fairly strong level reasons to believe that we are really, really weird. Um, so, so you, when you say really, really weird, like really, really rare. Weirdly smart, rarely smart. Yeah, that that I, a, that an intelligence I, to the level that we have reached is is not nearby in our volume of space. I, I don't claim this, but I am saying that if I were to rank order um, a top 10 list of Fermi explanations, one would be the fact that we skate the very inner edge of our Goldilocks zone and therefore probably are drier than most water worlds. And therefore our intelligent life form that evolved was on land because we had a lot of land and had hands in fire. That's a fairly substantial non-Copernican situation that could help explain it. In which case, it's the most optimistic of them all because we'll build starships, we'll go out there, we'll find plenty of other people to talk to. It's just there'll be whales and dolphins and, 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 and right. octopuses. And, yeah, and there's a, there's a thousand to... times more ice worlds than there are terrestrial planets in the habitable And zones. terrestrial planets with water, most of them have less continents. You see my point? Yeah. Because get the inner edge of our Goldilocks zone. So that's one possibility. Another is anomalous intelligence. And not just how much intelligence, but how quickly we got it. Because we were already ruining this planet with goat herds. Uh, all we needed was stone spears, fire, and a hundred word vocabulary. And we were able to preserve vast herds of goats from predators. 
and they were denuding the landscape all over the world, spreading deserts, primitive agriculture. If we had gained that level of intelligence and only gradually got smart enough to see what we were doing, we might have destroyed this world without carbon-based fuels. Um, and that may have happened elsewhere. Instead, within 10,000 years of the first goat herd and, and the first uh, irrigation, we became smart enough to be able to notice what we're doing. That's an eye blink. So looking at these questions, you can leap to a conclusion. You can get your ideas and concepts from sci-fi. Or you can read good sci-fi and realize that these issues are actually fairly complicated. Yeah, I mean, I think my anyone who thinks they have a, an easy answer to the Fermi paradox hasn't thought through the Fermi paradox enough. And, and that when you really consider the, I mean, the, the fact that human beings are a we are within decades, potentially a century, of sending self-replicating robot probes to other worlds well within the capabilities of the speed of light. It is baffling that, that we haven't found anyone else's probes out there, and it makes this question so much more fascinating. David, I, I know, I know just the time just goes like, uh, like nothing, but we are reaching the end of our hour, and I want to respect your time. I want you to write some more, so I don't want to have to keep interviewing you nonstop. Um, but let's let people know where they can find more information from you. Where are, if they want to see what you're working on, see where you're communicating, where's the best place to go? Well, my website is davidbren.com. My blog is Contrary Bryn. Um, my novel, my most recent novel, Existence, is about probes, several types of probes. And we might find a lot of them uh, in the asteroid belt, a logical place to look. Um, and, uh, of course, I'm on social media as well. Uh, people can follow on Facebook. But the... Um, I wanted to thank you for um, helping to organize the trip down to the Mayan <laughs> temples uh, back in 2012 when we saved the world. We did. We did. It we was did because if it wasn't for us. 150 skeptics stood on the steps of a Mayan temple the instant the world was going to end, and we canceled it yep. by uttering the great incantation and chant of skeptics. We looked around and we went, nah. <laughs> David, thank you so much. Uh, thanks You're everyone welcome. for watching. Thank you to the moderators for jumping in there. I know you had a busy time. Uh, if you want to be part of that community, go to wshcrew.space and you can participate in that community. Thanks everybody. Uh, and we'll see you all next week. All right.